This is the Mentor Shift Podcast, coming out every second Thursday with Mickey Fahair. Hey man, I'm so excited to have you here. This is Mentorship Thursday again, and this is your host, Mickey Fair. I want to thank you profusely for listening to this week's podcast. If you're here, you're probably like me. Sometimes you feel like as a man, you have to carry the weight of the world on your shoulders alone. I started this work because I believe we can help each other to learn and grow together and share some of this weight. If you like the sound of this, please subscribe to the Mentorship Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your preferred choice of listening for podcasts. I hope to be with you on the way to work or in your living room or when you're running or walking, whenever you fancy listening to podcasts. Let's share the weight and learn together. So welcome, John. I'm really excited about today because you are an acting coach and you're going to explain what that is to the listeners. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but it's it's really great to have you because you know acting is something that was very close to my heart all all my life but I still think that I know so little about it and the whole masculinity and femininity question is you know this is like the place where this shows up and I'm really curious how you are thinking about it but let's not jump ahead let me just hand over the ball to you wonderful um, I was gonna say oh the pressure wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my name is John Dapolito and yes, I, uh, do professional acting, uh, teaching, coaching, um, and marketing strategies as well. Yeah. Very cool. And so what does, a, a professional acting coach do? Like, can you explain a little bit about oh, that? That's a great, you know, that's a really great question. I mean, ultimately what you're doing is you're trying to match the individual with material. You're, you're, you know, you're dealing in a world of a lot of emotions. So ultimately it's emotional management of the individual. So the person has to become very, very aware of their craft, which is crafting meaning, which means I'm crafting emotional responses to things inside of a script. And what you do is you hire a professional coach to kind of assess the taste on that and guide you on that. Is this the best that it could be? Are there other things that you're seeing, et cetera, et cetera, to, to make that go as well as possible to increase um, the probability of landing work and becoming a household name. Ultimately, you got, you got a lot of people's dreams in your hand is what I like to say. It's like you, you have to understand you're carrying people's dreams when you get into this level, this position that I'm in, which is people who are professional actors, not just starting out, but people already in it already working and they're looking to substantially reach another level within that career. Right, right. Can you mention, by the way, a few, I, I don't know if that's confidential, I didn't ask you up front, but can you mention a, a, a few names of, of people that you've been working with that were kind of like... You know, this is, a, this is a great question, and, and, but there are huge names that I've, I've worked with. Um, mm -hmm. but, I, but I could say all Broadway, television, film, trust me, you have witnessed actors that I've worked with privately. And because it's a private session, I'll let them come to you at some point. You just have to trust me on that. And, and I also know that you are writing and directing as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, mostly, I mean, I have written a screenplay. And um, 
with my friend Dominic Tiefenthaler, we co-wrote. And that screenplay is called When Tough Guys Were King, uh, which is a three, three generational look at, um, ironically, topical um, father-son relationships and what that means from generation to generation to generation. Yeah. And the I recently penned a new play. I was I'm primarily a playwright, and that's what I was doing for a long time, and I thought that would be my full path. And I recently penned a new full-length play called um, Ethan and Nico Go to Therapy, which sounds really simple in its title, but it's uh, a little bit more complex about power struggles between not only men and women, but through nations and the power struggle that goes on even between um, the soul and the flesh. And so this entire project is about that. And so I'm just shopping that now, I'm getting that out into people's hands. Um, but obviously with COVID-19, that's been a little bit more challenging than I had originally thought to. So, you know, there's been a little bit of setback there. No, I, I, I hear you. So, you know, your first title, When Tough Guys Were King, is, is yeah. There, yeah, am I quoting you right? Yes. So that, that sounds like almost, you know, a preamble to our discussion because mm-hmm. we, wanted to talk, we wanted to talk about modern masculinity and how that differs from that old idea of masculinity. So as much as you're comfortable, could you share a little bit about your own life story and how you were battling with this question of masculinity sure, and, and, and your relationship to your father? Sure. I really, I love sharing this story actually, because it's one that I feel like I had a great triumph in. So my father left my family when I was four years old. And it was really the moment of my life that just rocked everything. And my life was just never going to be the same from that moment forward. And as many of us know that, you know, since the seventies, um, And I was born in 1964. So at 1968, my dad left the family. So you could say late 60s, early 70s, we saw the substantial increase in the divorce rate in the country. And it's been just going on and on ever since. And so this disruption inside of families of where is this father figure? Where is mentorship and father category? I was starved for that relationship. And in my case, um, it was getting so painfully starved for it that in my mid-20s, about the age of 25, I had noticed that emotionally I was feeling a lot of uh, suicidal tendencies. Not that I personally wanted to commit suicide, but I noticed it was coming up a lot. It's coming up so much that I said, I need to put myself into therapy because I didn't want to kill myself. But I noticed that it was showing up as an emotion, like as a as a, as a probability emotionally, like why, why did I want out of life? Well, I was suffering, I was in pain. So I always see suicide as a, as a symbolic metaphor. We want change. We're not actually after taking our lives, but we want to change the life that we have. And so I did something unprecedented. I had come from really low income uh, working class people um, who were lucky to have finished high school And I got through college, which was fantastic. And they worked hard to make that happen for me. But by the time, but I still had this pain going on. And I, and I knew it had something to do with my father's. The absenteeism in my father was extreme. So my therapist had recommended since my father was alive that I try to you know, reach out to him. And of course, I didn't want anything to do with that. Um, I knew my father was dying at the time. And I didn't know how long that death 
thing would be. So I think that my father's death started to stir up some of these emotions as well. Anyway, cut to chase. About two years later, after therapy, I would say about the age of 27, I did finally get up the gumption to reach out to my grand grandparents who had my father's number. This was his parents. And I got the number and I called him. And it was an awkward, as you can imagine, years of estrangement. But we got together. It went okay. I met his new family, his young kids. He had three young kids. I met his wife, all lovely people. And he was and, a guy, right? Like he, Oh, he yeah. Was, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, he had a notorious reputation. He was notorious for town after town after town, in and out of jail. I mean, he really had a um, bad boy reputation and was very feared by many, many, many other men. And I knew about this legacy, so to speak. It wasn't the best legacy one could have, but it was a legacy nonetheless. People were feared. He was feared and revered kind of simultaneously because of this violent uh, tendencies that he had. Um, but he also had a kind of Robin Hood violent tendency. So he would you know, do things for people in a way that people felt justifiable. But the real point to the story, which my takeaway was, Right. That I continued to pursue that relationship with my father, even though it was awkward at the beginning. And I had asked him if he would record with me. And this is back when VHS and cameras and lugging all this equipment around. And I sat down and I just recorded a conversation. And I asked him his first memory to what he thought death would be. Because like I said, he was dying at the time. And he was dying of AIDS at the time. So as you can see, I didn't have a lot of time on my hands. But I, it still took me two years to get there. Um, but he was hanging in there and he was struggling. And we found a great relationship in me just coming to him and listening. I, I didn't come with blame. I didn't come with anything but listening. And he gave me one of the great gifts of my life, a gift that I think most men are looking for from their father, which is at some point in our many conversations, because this happened over many, many days because he was so ill. Um, he said, you know, John, I wish that I was more like you. If I had my life to do over again, I'd want to be a man like you. The life that I had, it's That's not so one beautiful. that I really want. It was a beautiful, beautiful moment because I, it really took me back because it wasn't, I, I didn't even realize how much I needed it, let alone because I wasn't showing up with that. But I, I realized deep down that all men, even a man who doesn't have a father around, is looking to be affirmed, to really be seen by his father, or at the least, his mentors. And this really signatured my life that moment, Nikki. It was a huge experience. So I always tell people, listen, if your father's still alive and you have estrangement, you have to take the risk and go and be open. Don't show up with blaming and shaming and that kind of thing. Show up to listen. And it brings you more than you ever could expect. I think that's really good advice. And um, by the way, as I'm, as I'm listening to you, um, so he left early on. And, and so there was an absence in the place of, you know, the father figure in your, in your life. How, how did it influence your masculinity the, the fact that you know he was not around and like what 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 happened how did you react to that were you looking for you know 
a positive father figure somewhere else? Or did you not know that you were missing something? I was definitely starved for it. There's no question about it. When my uncles would, when my uncles would rarely show up because one uncle lived in Florida and they were just really not around. I came from just broken men, broken men, broken families. And, you know, in many ways, broken women too. Um, this brokenness was really so costly. So like when an uncle would come around, I noticed that my, my inners would just be like, oh, what's he doing? I was so starved for something to mimic that reminded me of myself. Because as much as doting as my mother was and my grandparents were and my grandmother, who I also was raised in the same home with, I, I, did, I didn't see me reflected there. And so I had no idea, like, what is my behavior? What, what am I, where are my allowances? Where am I allowed to do? What, what is okay? What is all right? So I was just starved for that and looking for it everywhere I could find, in movies, in books, in, friend, in, in my male friendships even. I had oh. a lot of male friends who were helping people that if I could respect them, I might try to mimic them a little bit or follow what they were doing. It's interesting because you ended up in a profession which to me sounds like, you know, this is the ultimate expression of mentorship. So you, you, you are a mentor to the people that you work with. How do you think you've kind of moved towards that profession? Right? Profession came to me through my grandfather is what I think. My grandfather was a movie buff and he loved movies and mm. he would drill me on movies and he was really someone showing things, rewinding movies, going back and forth, showing me why acting was important. And he secretively wanted to be an actor all of his life. So I definitely grabbed on to that somewhere along the line. And so my grandfather was the one who kind of showed me that movies were a place of it. Everything was okay or acting was okay. Now, it was a big thing to come from my family and want to be a movie star, you know. But nonetheless, there it was. But when I got further into it, I realized, oh, wait a second. This is really about, this is an emotional landscape. This is a world where one has to know oneself. This isn't just magical thinking about fame and fortune. This is about self-discovery. And in that, I was hooked much more deeply than I ever expected to be hooked because self-awareness was something that I was really, really starved for, and I didn't have proper mentorship. So my big mentor was a gentleman named William Esper, um, everybody called Bill, but uh, he just only recently passed within the past year, a phenomenal mentor to me. He's what I call my artistic father, who really, really set the parameters of, he set up this room where emotion could happen and there would be guidelines on what emotions would, how far you could go with those emotions, boundaries, how far you were at, and that you were allowed to have this full expression. I had no idea I was angry. And again, I was studying with him in my early 20s before that 25 suicide time. I had no idea how angry I was until I started studying with him. I thought I was a kind of, kind of nice guy, jolly good guy. And I got in there and I realized I was furious. I was furious at my mom. I was furious at my dad. I was furious at the circumstances of being the eldest son, taking care of a younger brother. And I, I suddenly had to deal with this level of self-awareness. And it became a huge, huge part of my life. And one that I carried that torch later on. 
later on, I became this person and I am this person now where I like to say this, Mickey, is we become that which we need. So my deficit of male mentorship and fatherhood around me and guidance around me from men was so great that I became that. I ended right. up filling in that. I, it became a subject matter void. for me. Yeah. I filled the void and I filled <laughs> the void for others. I filled it for myself and eventually for others. Yeah. You know? Yeah, definitely. And so, you know, I, I, I get this idea of feeling the void and I'm, I'm wondering, like, you're working with both men and women, obviously, uh, as, as you're coaching. What have you noticed about other men who had no father figures or, you know, like a bad relationships, yeah. bad relationship with their father? What's yeah, yeah. This is an interesting place because when you're in the position of the teacher, of the mentor, you have to be incredibly conscious that you're dealing with not just the men who come to you, but like you said, Mickey, the women who are coming to you. We're all coming out of 50 years of broken homes. And we don't even know. We're, the distrust towards men is strong. Not because men are beautiful and extraordinary. Of course we are but because we haven't grown up with them around us enough. And so we don't know what the temperature is on their moods, their emotions, their feelings. And because there's such brokenness in our nation and perhaps around the world, but I certainly know in America, there's such brokenness, we don't know how to be around men. So the trust factors are, are really, really bad. Men come to the room and you can tell that they, I can tell right away who's had a father around and who has not, including the women. I can tell right away who's had a father around and who has not, just by the way they start to treat you. And then, so then what does that situation, that situation becomes my job. It's my responsibility at that point to recognize I'm most likely the first real male that they've tried to get into a trust situation where they're going to have a lot of their own emotions and their own feelings. And they're going to look to me to create a healthy environment of boundaries and trust and guidance within as they self-discover. So this becomes a real, real place and a real responsibility. And so you have to, A, have gone through that experience yourself, which I did with my own father. And I had, a, I had a tremendous healing with my father. I was very, very lucky. I also had a great relationship with my artistic mentor, William Esper. So I was very, very lucky The artistic there. father. <laughs> That's right, my artistic father. I got very lucky with that. Now, Bill was tough on me, Bill Esper. He was very, very tough on me, as he was many people. And so I learned, like, wow, I have to s sit through this tough, tough criticism. I have to sit through this. I'm not allowed to lash out, come back. Because if you tried to lash out at Bill, he stopped that right away. Hmm. And I realized, whoa, I'm in a position where I'm dealing with them. This is, this is what men are. Like, right. like they get to say what they want. And if you push back on them, they'll shut you down. And I realized, whoa, that's, that's an interesting dynamic that I hadn't grown up with because I didn't have it around. Like, you am see, I can, allowed can, to... Yeah. Can, can I stop you there for, for a moment? Because that's really interesting because one of the, you know, one of the experiences that I have, you know, especially if you go around in progressive circles, you know, it's, it's uncool to be a man. It's uncool to be a white man, especially. And, 
you know, when, when you kind of get into why is it so uncool, you know, what people say is because, you know, because men are misusing their power and unaware of their privilege. And I'm not, you know, doubting that some men do. But what you were describing is very interesting because you're saying to me that there was a man, your artistic father, who was actually a powerful man. And, you know, he had things to say and, and you know, sometimes things had to go the way he wanted them to go. And, and yet you, you obviously love him and you, you think that you, you got something from him. So can, oh, yeah. can you explain this to me? It's like, is, isn't that aggression? Like, was he not an... Oh, yeah. It was certainly... You could definitely call the word aggression. Yeah. But if you... And there's no question about it. It was masculine behavior inside of a room. He was a man. Right. But you I always knew you always knew you were loved. You always knew it was mentorship. And you always knew it was, it was he was here to guide you. Right. You knew that he was pointing you towards something greater than you understood at, the, at that moment in time. And you were expected to listen to the criticism. You were expected to take sometimes harsh criticism. And you were expected to be able to digest it make the changes within yourself and reach the goals that you wanted to reach. Now, the real thing that is important in those environments is that everyone has a goal. Yeah. So it's not just father, son. See, the goal is I, I studied with him because I wanted to be a great actor by great actor. I mean, as worthy as Al Pacino, as worthy as, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman or Daniel Day Lewis. I wanted to study with someone who was a great mentor. So because I had that goal, I was willing to subject myself to the teachings. So one of the things that's really critical in a father-son relationship is to, A, at some point, you know, what I noticed, I, I have three nephews and I have uh, four nieces. So what I, and I do a lot of mentorship of adults, but what I notice is that you have to make sure in the mentorship that everyone knows what the goal is. So the teaching is not some blind teaching where my aggression is just pure aggression to you. Where the assertiveness, which is probably mm -hmm. a better way, my assertiveness towards you gets taken in the right ways because we both know what the goal is. It's when the goal's not there in some father-son relationships, they don't really know what the goal is and dad's just kind of appears to be picking on the son all the time. This isn't a good quality relationship because sons are looking for affirmation not to be picked on and i've got a lot of thoughts around that like where where the old school father-son mentorship stuff should be left off and where it really needs to start shifting to but these are experiences that i've learned through you know being i'm 55 years old at this point like i said i was born in 1964 and so i've i've seen a lot you know, at this, at this juncture of, and this subject has been so important to me. And I've been one of these people who've gone through the journey. So can, can I ask you, like, if, if you had to describe three important characteristics of the modern masculine attitude, you know, the way you define modern masculinity yeah. for yourself based on all this, what, what are three important characteristics? Well, let me, I'll talk about it. Hopefully I'll be able to hit three because I'm not thinking necessarily in three bullet points, but hopefully I'll be able to hit three. The most important shift I see, Mickey, is that this movement away from what I call tribal competition and into support. 
Yeah. A lot of the foundation of what's happened is that men are so busy competing with each other that they have forgotten to support one another. Even to get into a group, there's a hazing period, which is, of course, not supportive. One has to live up to, get hazed, and then becomes part of the tribe. Once you're part of the tribe, our tribe competes with this other tribe. And then these two tribes come together and they compete. And if it's good, they compete in healthy ways. The issue that I have with that kind of teaching is that it's not working. The problem is, is that it buries all the key things that we need, which is all men are looking for emotional support. And in those environments, I'm not going to find emotional support because it's already set up to compete. It's not set up to be supportive, but to compete with one another, not only in the tribe, but also with other tribes. And this becomes a massive problem because without the emotional support, men start to bury emotions and bury feelings. And the more you start to bury, the more aggressions come out, what I call sideways aggressions. Aggressions where we, do, sometimes it's aggressions against ourselves. That could be through food, that could be through porn, that could be through alcohol or drug use. It's aggressions against ourselves or aggressions maybe against others. That's a problem because if a man's feeling supportive, he's less apt to take aggressions against himself or anyone else because he's got support. He's got support systems. So what we have to realize, we got an entire structure, structure of the nation is set up in competition versus supportive. We need each other. There's an interdependency and there has to be the, the environment that's created in order for a person to have a complex set of emotions boys are aggressive by nature they need to feel that they can play like little puppies rolling around with their barks <laughs> they need to know that this is okay they need to know it's okay to climb a tree my nieces i encourage to climb trees i let my nieces are far more aggressive than my nephews my nephews learned from being around my brother and i that there were boundaries very early on my nieces, who also have a beautiful father, my brother-in-law named Nick, um, never really know what those boundaries are. So when I'm wrestling with them, I always have to worry because they're not used to wrestling around with men all the time. So they don't really know where the boundaries are, and so they go too far. Whereas when you're working with young boys, you tend to wrestle a little bit more because boys wrestle a lot. And so boys learn very early on where the boundaries are, where it's a healthy, fun, playful wrestle versus someone can hurt, you know, get hit in the crotch. Someone's eyes can get hurt. Someone's fingers can get snapped or broken. Like when it gets too far, where the girls, they just come at your claws think, and, they, and they think it's all fun, but they're going a little too far. So this is something I tease my sister about a lot, you know? Mm, yeah. So the, the points I would say is the most important thing I tell young men or sometimes older men is that there are perennial truths. There are perennial truths when it comes to manhood, when it comes to womanhood. One of the perennial truths of manhood, probably the first primary feature of it is safety. You represent and you symbolize safety. There's no question about this. You symbolize emotional safety as well as physical safety. People need to feel that they can be emotionally safe around you and physically safe around you. Now, that's a responsibility that comes with manhood. 
you have to recognize this as a perennial truth. You are the symbol of safety, whereas womanhood is a symbol of nurture. It does not mean that women don't want to protect their young. Of course they do. But men are the safety net of protectors while, she, while she's got birth in her womb, while she's giving birth, while she's nurturing the child, the man is expected to protect. But this goes beyond just these, oh, I'm giving birth, that's my wife or my partner. This goes into a deeper part of the human psyche, which is men ultimately symbolize safety to other men and to women and to children. And it's very important to realize this so that you can start to say, okay, I have needed and wanted this all of my life. And if it's something I have needed, the chances are others have needed it as well. So getting hooked, understanding that perennial truth about oneself is really, really key. Because if you're just emotionally acting out inside of an environment, even if you feel wronged, even if you feel betrayed, even if you feel double-crossed, etc., this is a massive problem if you think you can just act out in that environment and allow your emotions to be so disruptive that people do not feel emotionally safe safe around you or physically safe around you. Yeah, by the way, I was I was just talking to someone about this and he said uh, it's not just being able to offer mentorship, but it's actually no, the the, the way he said, you know, it's not just being able to ask for mentorship because it's not easy for a man to ask for help, but it's also going out there openly and offer it to other men. So as, as you say, you know, I can be a safety source for you. I can, Absolutely. I can make you feel comfortable and you can tell me and it's going to be okay. I'm not going to mock you. I'm not going to shame you. That's right. Um, so is, is that because I said, you know, if you could tell me three things, are, are we still in the first one or have we, because the first one you said it's competition versus, so support versus competition. And yeah, then, we definitely need we definitely yeah. need to feel a sense of support. We need to feel affirmed. You know, we we need to feel affirmed. We need we need to feel support. So I see you, I hear you, and I acknowledge you. This is very very important to look at that affirmation in that manner. I see you, I hear you, and I acknowledge you. That's just the core human thing. It has nothing to do with manhood. That's women, men. Exactly. Everyone wants to be seen, heard, and acknowledged. But can I provide the space for that? When I'm going through my own troubles and my own anxiety and my own emotional disruptions from the events of my childhood, it's often very, very difficult to offer that to someone. So what can I do? What I can do at that point is seek out the people that will help me through this period of my life, that will help me transition into manhood. Here's a, here's a, a very, very important thing that I wanted to bring up today. Women, when they hit a certain age, they experience menstruation. They have their period. And this bleeding out from the body is so symbolic in terms of womanhood has come. Now imagine this. Imagine a woman, a young girl, she hasn't had to talk with mom yet. And all of a sudden, one day, there's just blood all over her legs and in her thigh. And it could be a random situation where she's out in public with friends and she doesn't know what's happening. And it can be very, very emotionally traumatic. Now, if she's around good, healthy women, they've already prepared her for this. They've had conversation around her. This has been a conversation that's had 
probably several years before it's even going to occur. And then, so when it does happen, she's able to understand what's happened and then, you know, do a 180 and get home and take care of herself. What we need and where we're starved in, in manhood is what is our rite of passage into manhood? Since women are given this physically by nature, what is then the bloodied, so to speak, experience from boyhood into manhood? Where is the rite of passage into manhood since we haven't anything physical that actually happens to us that is that traumatic as bleeding from the body? This is where adult men who have made the passage themselves really come in. I like to say men, the difference between the sexes is that men have to be born twice, once through their mother's womb, and then again through their father's womb. And that second bleeding you need comes under the same severity, the physical severity of a woman bleeding. In other words, when I finally was studying with William Esper, there was such harsh criticisms at time with what I was trying to learn, what I was trying to do, that, that it, it, would, it could be crushing. I could, I could leave feeling very, very small, yet I knew I wanted to learn and I knew he was accurate, I knew it was true. And so I, you take the hits, so to speak. You take the emotional, the spiritual hits, knowing that you're going to move through this rite of passage into something greater. And so you are rebirthed. And it's critical to find that person that you are willing to do that with. And to skip that step in manhood, in boyhood to manhood, is really, 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 oof, I, I, I think, part of all the suffering that men go through. Yeah, I think Freud on, talked about this on a very different level, that he said that everybody, you know, every every boy is in love with his mother and, and wants to kill his father. And, and it sounds really harsh. But I think on a deeper level, what, what he really meant is that at some point, you know, the father figure, you, you, you kind of realize that even my dad doesn't know everything and you have to become you and you have to find your own answers. And as you do, you probably need to find someone, as you say, which is typically not your father, actually, but someone else who becomes your mentor and you will be able to take feedback that you would not be able to take from your father. Yes. So. I think that, yeah, it could look in healthy environments. The father very much could be this person and in an, you know, edu by healthy environment, I mean, emotionally educated father An emotionally educated father who's gone through the passage himself completely can make this passage for his son and probably does it from birth onward, provided that he has, done the work himself. And if that's not the case, which is often the case, especially in American culture, you have to find the mentors who've done that rite of passage themselves. Now, I knew Bill Esper had done that rite of passage himself, and I knew that he had shepherded many, many people through that rite of passage when I, by the time I had come to study with him. Now, I'm 17 years into teaching as well, so I've shepherded many, many, many people over the years as well. So you get to a point where there's many, many people that you've shepherded through this and you become very, very good at it, very good at understanding the complexity of emotions and nuances. And some people resist, like you'll run into one in a thousand that just can't make the rite of passage. They, they refuse to go. They don't want to go there. 
um, and they hold on to the old self and they remain, you know, boy child, you know, a man child. They, they don't take that rite of passage into what, um, into their own masculinity, which is really their own sense of self and responsibility um, of, of themselves and the, the space that they hold and carry around them. Yeah, I mean, some of the men's groups and support groups that uh, we are doing also in, in the mentorship initiative are about that idea that we, we need to support each other and we need to become mentors to each other and we need to let each other inspire us so that, you know, we, we become the real us. Um, yes. I, I wanted to ask you one kind of final question which um, relates to acting and also masculinity what what does masculinity have to do with acting in in general how, how does it show up in the work yeah it's a great it's a great question you know actors are really dependent on the writer in the end mm -hmm. you know what's being written what's being said about men and you know it's unfortunate because we as you kind of started pointing out earlier that we live in a culture that has done so much shaming of men for so many decades now that I think that there's a tremendous confusion in the air as to what is manhood. And I think that there's this seeking or searching for what does it mean to be a man? And so we that gets reflected in the writing this kind of you run into a lot of men in existential crises i've been noticing that a lot in people's writings like men are always in some kind of existential crises or living in a cabin alone or they're separate from others and they're fragmented from their families and fragmented from society and this becomes a really really interesting thing so what does it mean in acting well you the actor gets forced to kind of deal with the compass that's been given to him in terms of the language and the story. So it shows up constantly that there's this confusion about around what is manhood at this point in time. Well, because we've gotten away from this, what I call the perennial truths, which is, you know, the perennial truths just exist through an infinite amount of time. So whenever there's confusion for manhood, what it means is the perennial truths are no longer being taught to him. So the teachers are absent. And what happens is we have to have men who are willing to show up as teachers, not as I know better than you, but the teachers of the perennial truths, which already exist inside the individual. And so you can say, so you can say to men, you already know what honor means. You already know that you prefer honor over betrayal. You already know what that is. You already know what that feels like. So, honor yourself and honor others. You know, Tom Cruise did a fantastic movie about this when he played the young soldier who was trying to kill himself. And then he ends up in the East and starts to study the perennial truths when he runs into kind of this warrior monk and the monk and the monk starts to teach him and, and mentor him, even though he was a very persnickety young soldier who had a bit of an attitude and a chip on his shoulder. And the, the Asian monk, warrior starts to teach him the perennial truths that you're not allowed to break from these perennial truths no matter what the situation or circumstance are you must hold true to integrity authenticity honor discipline 
These are real things. These are perennial things that can get you through the rainy days of, and the dark days and the dark nights of your soul. And those perennial truths, I, what I tell anyone, you can Google perennial truths and you'll find out what they are. There's a list of about eight or nine or 10 of them. Hell, what you could do is just Google the Tom Cruise movie. And it's called, I think it was called The Last Samurai. And I think, you could, yeah. I think you could just Google the, the billboard on it and it listed the perennial truths right there in front of you. You can get a Google image of it and say, oh, I must follow these. And it's not easy to follow them. It's really difficult and challenging to follow them. But there's where your manhood is. That's where it is. Because everything else is a fad. Everything else is just silliness. You know, man up, don't be a pussy. What does that even mean? It's a way to mock someone, humiliate someone. Exactly. But if you're what you're starved for is the perennial truths. What you're looking for is those perennial truths. And we all are. It's not just you. I'm not saying but I was starved for them. That's what I wanted for my mentor. In many ways, thank God my father wasn't around because he was not going to teach me the perennial truths. He didn't even, he didn't even know what they were. Yeah. I had to go somewhere else to find out what those were. Yeah, I, I, I guess... You know, I really agree with this idea of safety. Um, so to be to, to be able to be a good man is to be able to provide safety and safety yes. to other men, yes. safety to children, safety to yes. women, safety to the whole world. Yes. And interestingly, I, I also find that, you know, it's this idea of do you have a place of safety inside you? So how do you treat yourself as a man? Because Absolutely. oftentimes men, you know, sort of, slave on themselves so they are not providing inner safety to their own parts and and they are humiliating themselves yes without even you know having to have someone there out there who's who's humiliating you so maybe modern masculinity also includes this idea of how can i provide my own inner safety absolutely 100 percent, nikki 100 there's no question about it you must be very very good to yourself especially, especially when men were absent in your life and continue to be absent or you just don't have that trusting fact. You haven't been raised around them, so you don't really know how to be around them. And then you get out into the world and you see that the majority of men are behaving in a very competitive way, which is cruel and nasty and degrading. And they're justifying this by calling it, well, I'm keeping a roof over my head. Hey, that's the game, man. That's the way it's got to be played dog eat dog out there, all these really rough masculine terminologies, which aren't really holding up because we know something deeper and we know something more true within our own self. We know we expect more. We know we want the support. We know that we need it. And it's okay to say, hey, listen, that's not working. You think it's dog eat dog? Good for you. That ain't working for me. I want support out here. I want people that I can look to and lean on. So if you were to summarize, maybe like in two, three sentences, what does it mean for you in 2020, you know, going through this crisis right now, COVID-19, um, you know, being an acting coach, being a writer, a creative person, what, what does it mean to you to be a man? Oh, wow. That's a tough question, Mickey. Wow. <laughs> 
what does it mean to be a man going because i'm no this? so the reason i'm asking just just to make myself uh feel better because i asked a tough <laughs> one. No, but the reason i'm asking is is you said a lot you know there's confusion about being a man and what is yes. it what does it take to be or you know how do we define it so i'm i guess i'm just in simple terms how do you define it for yourself that's that's what i'm wondering Yeah, well, I have a I have practices that I've been very much involved in for many, many years. I mean, right up here, you can see this in this image here is Sri Nisargata Maharaj. I've been deep into um, Eastern philosophies for many, 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 many decades at this point in time, since I was in my teens. Since I first got word, uh, wind of the word enlightenment, I was like, what does that mean? And I was hooked. And so I started studying Sri Nisargata Maharaj, Ramana Maharshi. Um, these were particular Eastern philosophers and master teachers who ultimately pointed to spending time, very much like the Buddha, spending time inward. Although the Buddha had very, very strict doctrines, these gentlemen offered something in Hinduism that was even simpler than that. And I was saying, no, this must boil down to something simple like E equals MC squared. I mean, everyone's looking for it. And then Einstein comes up with E equals MC squared. And you're staring at it and you go, why couldn't I think of that? <laughs> Because it's always going to come down to something simple. Never forget that. The answer is not complex. The answer is always going to be something simple. So when you're staring at a big, big problem, there's no big problem. There's a simple problem. And that's the solve. Look, no matter how big the door is, there's one little key that opens it. Yeah. You know, it doesn't that. matter the size <laughs> or the thickness of the door, whatever. There's just one key that opens it. It's that simple, you know. So the, what I tell people is find a practice that's real for you. That practice may be going to men's groups. I, I love what you're doing. And I think what you're doing is a really, really special thing for men. Going to men's group and spending time there and the takeaways and working in that practice. For me, I, I found the arts, and that was a self-realization practice, which also accompanied all the self-realization. My whole lifetime is self-realization practice. That's what it is. So you have to find a practice that's true to you and, and find one that's real. In other words, you'll know it's real when it's dealing with your emotions. Find that practice, whatever it is whether it's sometimes it's therapy. You, some people go to therapy and they find a therapist and that's, that's where that practice happens. Some people join a softball team, but if they're not dealing with the team in an emotional way where there's not real emotions and, and they don't have that time where they're starting to deal with each other in their lives and interwoving what that feels like, I'd say, mm, and challenging each other emotionally, I'd say you're probably just caught up in the tribe competition thing again. Love it. Thank you. I, I want to say that, you know, one advice that we have not really given to our listeners, you know, this is, you know, this has been going on for a while and there's, there's going to be plenty of more episodes every, every two weeks. But what we haven't said, or I haven't said is get out of your head and get into your body. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, that's where the emotions are. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I love what you're saying that the way I translated uh, what, what you just said is that you're only as good as your habits. You're only as good as your practices. 
and your practices are only as good as they are putting you in touch with your emotions as well, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I couldn't say it better. You have to get out of your head. You have to get into the body and into the emotional body and let your body speak. It's already speaking. It's already speaking anyway. So, and, and look, find, it's okay to be on the hunt. It's okay to say, I'm seeking the environment that's right for me and to try a bunch of different things out. But that, keep going. You need to oh, keep going, yeah. right? Keep because looking. if you stop, yeah, that's that's when, the, the, if you're not moving, there's no opportunity. And by the way, in order to move, you need passion. And because passion gives you energy and passion comes from emotions. So again, get back And so going. does pain. Look, right. ang- pain is real. Pain is also a great motivator. If you haven't had a mentor around, if you've been in an environment where you haven't had a father around, you are starving. I know I was starving, starving for male mentorship, male camaraderie, a type of camaraderie that dealt with emotional conversations where I could look over and say, hey, I'm confused. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And the person say, oh, God, thank God you said that because I don't know what I'm doing. You know, just that. Love it. Comfort is the enemy of growth. Well, <laughs> well that was go. John Dapolito on uh, The Art of Being a Man. Thanks again for, for coming and sharing some of this. I, I found it really fascinating. And, and I hope that we inspired many men to go and find mentors, to go and find safety, and to get out of the head and get into the body. <laughs> Mickey, it's a, it's a great, great pleasure for me to, to be even be asked to speak with you. I love what you're doing. Thank you for spending time with me and, and hearing my two cents on it and helping men with manhood. It's so, so important. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Please check our webpage at www.mentorship.com www.mantorshift.com Join our newsletter and learn about the Mentorship Coaching and other services and resources we offer. Keep listening to our podcast for more inspiration and motivation.